0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Today we start a new study, Old Testament survey, and we've talked about the different ways that we study Scripture, right? We can take a paragraph in one of the epistles or even just a couple of verses and really dig deep on that. And we could also do bigger picture studies like we did with the biblical covenants, the study that we just finished. This one definitely falls into that latter category, and it's a good time for us to do it right after biblical covenants because the covenants provide the framework for this survey of the Old Testament. Now, I want to ask you a couple of questions because I'm operating on a certain set of presuppositions about my own uh, growing up in the church and how little we studied the Old Testament, especially the storyline of the Old Testament. I've been talking about that a lot lately. How many of you would say that you already have a pretty good grasp of the storyline of the Old Testament? Okay. A couple. And again, I'm not talking about just the stories in the Old Testament. You know, certainly we're familiar with those, especially in the first part of Genesis. Uh, Other favorite Bible books, maybe Proverbs and Psalms. But the storyline that runs from Genesis to Malachi, it's really important to have a good grasp of that. A lot of the slides that we're going to look at today are are ones that I've shown before uh, at different times. In fact, the first one is going to be a question as to why we as believers today who are not under the law, why would we even study the Old Testament? So that's a review. We asked that same question at the beginning of the covenants class. And I want to see how much of it you remember, frankly. This is the book that we're recommending. I hope if you've not already gotten a copy of that, you can get one in the next couple of weeks. uh, Bev and I won't be here next Sunday, but we'll be back on the following Sunday. And our plan is to do an introduction today, kind of a survey of the Old Testament broadly. Next time, in two weeks, we'll do a survey of the Pentateuch broadly, and then we'll start in Genesis so, if you haven't gotten a book already, you'll have an opportunity, to still have an opportunity to do that, not fall behind in any way. So, with that brief introduction, why do we need to study the Old Testament today as Christians? And again, I talk to some believers who say, well, I think the Old Testament is kind of obsolete at this point, right? It's not really directly addressing us as the church. There's a lot about the law in there. We know we're not under the law. So, why would we study the Old Testament today? Okay, it was their Bible, right? The, the folks in Jesus' day, uh, certainly during the ministry of Christ, that's what he referred to as the Old Testament Scriptures, as his Bible, and the Apostles, and Paul included, are getting new revelation so that the New Testament is actually being written over that time. So that's one good reason. What are some others? Exactly. Same God in both Testaments, the same God that inspired the whole of the Bible. Think about if we didn't study the Old Testament, how much we don't learn about the character of God. What else? Exactly. So we've talked about the fact that the Bible is on the one hand a collection of 66 books, but it's also one book with one story. And you would never go, I know you've heard me say this before, but... You'd never start two-thirds of the way through a book, right? You'd want to start at the beginning. And it's the same with the Scripture. Butch. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the difference between the Hebrew canon and the English canon. A lot of them are, but there's times where they kind of get out of order. Chronologically, that is. That's right. Exactly. The New Testament writers themselves do that, right? And that's a very good thing. I don't mean to diminish that in any way. But don't only do that. Don't just use the Old Testament to illustrate the New Testament truth. There's Old Testament truth that stands on its own in its own context. And again, that storyline is really important for understanding the New Testament. And we'll talk about that some more, too, as we go along. Okay. You guys have done well. I'm going to throw what I have up here, and some of these are things that you've already said, some of them are not. Two-thirds of our Bible is in the Old Testament. Again, if it's the same God, and if it's revealing His character, then we don't want to neglect that large portion of what God has given to us in His Word. The New Testament can only be properly understood against the background of the Old Testament. You know, when John the Baptist burst on the scene after 400 years of silence by any of the prophets... He and others in the New Testament era are assuming that you're familiar with the Old Testament content. Certainly the New Testament writers are. Bible, <clears throat> as Jared said, the Bible of the New Testament writers was the Old Testament. These writers often quote from the Old Testament. They assume you're familiar with its characters and its content. Revelation in particular is that way. Ben Weir talks about this in the section that we read for today. Over half of the verses in Revelation make some allusion back to the Old Testament. And it really helps you understand that book if you have a good grasp of the Old Testament behind it. Uh, Denise said, The same God is the author of both Testaments. You cannot know well the character of God unless you study the Old Testament. Think about the ways that he demonstrates that in the Old Testament. Some of the same as the New Testament. But his love, his righteous wrath against sin, his faithfulness to his promises, his longsuffering I think is particularly evident as he's dealing with the nation of Israel, uh, his sovereignty over everything, the fact that he created everything in the beginning and therefore rules and reigns over it. Because many Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the New Testament and many are not. And really the only way that you're going to know which are and which are not is to be familiar with the whole of the Scripture, right? You've got to know all of what the Old Testament does prophesy and then you've got to be able to see what has been fulfilled already in the New Testament and what remains to be fulfilled still in the future. Because when you read the Gospels, you're reading about events that took place under the same kind of setting, economy, as the Old Testament did. The real change is at Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit and the birth of the church. So it's really important to do that as you read the Gospels to have that Old Testament background. Because many of the Old Testament's teachings are timeless principles. What section of the Old Testament would that be particularly relevant for? I mean, it it would be true broadly, but Isaiah. Wisdom literature, very good. So we talked about how the wisdom literature, and we're talking about Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon doesn't advance the storyline of the Old Testament, but it really stretches across the whole of the Old Testament because you've got, for example, the book of Job. We think the action of that book, the characters, would have been contemporary with the patriarchs. And we say that based on the content of the book itself. We don't know for sure who wrote Job. We aren't told. I'm more and more convinced that it's Solomon. But the action part of the book—I mean, what he's, whoever the author was, what he's describing would have taken place during that time period. The Psalms, obviously, you got a Psalm written by Moses, and then you got many Psalms written by David, so it stretches over a long period of time. But the wisdom of the wisdom literature uh, is as good today as it was when it was first penned, and that's really important for us. Uh, that perhaps, even if you're not very familiar with the the storyline of the Old Testament, you still love those kinds of books, Psalms, Proverbs, Job. Not everything is restated and reapplied in the New Testament. Think of the doctrine of creation. Certainly there's references to it in the New Testament, but the fact that God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them over the course of six days is something you have to study Genesis 1 and 2 for. Because two basic yet essential themes of the Bible as a whole begin in the Old Testament. What are those two themes? Again, think back to our study of the covenants where we talked about this in the very beginning. David. God's kingdom is one. What's the other one? What's the framework for that kingdom? Or the outline? The the covenants. So covenant uh, is one of those themes, and we've just completed our study on it. And the kingdom of God is a major thing. That phrase doesn't appear in the Old Testament, but it's thoroughly illustrated through the Old Testament. We'll have a slide devoted to that. I'm sure you remember this slide. I think we talked about this when we went through hermeneutics. But at least my experience growing up in this part of the country, in a Southern Baptist church, We recognize that there were two divisions of the Bible, but we very much emphasize the New Testament because that's the part that told us about Christ. That's the part that addresses the church. Uh, It just seems more relevant for us today. Now, again, I grew up in Sunday school class, and we had the major stories from the Old Testament, but we did not systematically uh, learn the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, and I think that's a mistake not to do that, and that's part of the reason we're doing this class. Then the Old Testament is not uh, completely abandoned or neglected. Oftentimes that is the the way that it's used, is just to illustrate New Testament truth. But There's more to it than that, and I think the better way to read the Bible is to see all of it as the Word of God, recognizing that there was a 400-year gap between the Old and New Testament, where there was no prophet that spoke from God. But read the Bible, as Butch was alluding to, in the order in which it's given. That's the way that you're going to understand it the best. Uh, There is a storyline that runs not only through the Old Testament, through the New Testament as well. Yes. So, the main difference that the chronological Bible does is kind of interweave the prophets with... Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, so that you actually have a prophet's ministry lining up with the particular kings that are being addressed. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I don't use that method myself because I think there's value too in, in reading all the prophets together, uh, but I, I, I think you can benefit from both. I do think it's helpful for you to try to read through the Bible in a year just because <clears throat> you, you get the big picture. That's right, and you're going to see how later revelation builds on earlier revelation in a way that you can't do any other way. If you don't follow the chronological method, you at least want to be familiar with, when you're reading Isaiah and Jeremiah, which kings they're addressing and where their ministry falls. Now there's aids that can help you with that. Ben Ware's book is going to help us with that. but. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about the order of the books as we compare the Hebrew and English canons here in just a minute. I did want to say, too, though, in connection with this, how you read the Bible between these two options, that is, some people think it's right to prioritize the New Testament and that the New Testament really interprets the Old Testament. After all, it's later revelation. It's the revelation that brings us the knowledge of Christ. And so they purposefully Uh, read the New Testament with priority. They see the Old Testament as types and shadows, and they, in essence, reinterpret the Old Testament, at least parts of it, through the New Testament. That's really a hermeneutical issue. When I say hermeneutical, I mean it's a principle of interpretation, and it's going to lead you to very different conclusions, particularly with regard to eschatology. So, Pat Crowe was kind enough to give me this book, it's called Dispensational Hermeneutics by a guy named Michael Vlock, and he really does a good job of describing the difference between uh, what I'm just talking about, reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and really seeing the New Testament as kind of a flowering out of earlier Revelation, or prioritizing the New Testament and reading the Old Testament in light of it. It's a really good book. I think Michael Locke very clear, and you can get this on Amazon. It's called Dispensational Hermeneutics. Vlock's name is V-L-A-C-H. I, would, I know some of you already have copies of this, but I would really recommend getting it uh, just just for your own reading education. All right, here's another slide that we've looked at before. I, I think repetition is the mother of learning, so I'm not afraid to show these again. Uh, But I think I want to have a little bit different emphasis on this one. You're familiar with the way the kingdom runs through the Old Testament. Even though the kingdom of God phrase is not used, there's definitely the kingdom there, united under under Saul and David, divided with Solomon's sin into northern and southern kingdoms. Northern kingdom ends up being basically annihilated by Assyria. Southern kingdom is taken into captivity by Babylon. The ministry of the prophets, as we've already indicated, the latter prophets, is during the times of these kings. Most of them are ministering to the southern kingdom, just three uh, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea to the northern kingdom. And their message is really twofold. One, they're calling Judah back to covenant loyalty, they're confronting them with their sin, they're calling them to come back to the Lord and to keep covenant with Him. The second major thing that runs through all the latter prophets is a future day when they will, a day of restoration. Now, when I say future, I think when they read the prophets in their own day, they were thinking in their lifetimes kind of future. Uh, We know that now a different thing has come. The church has come and grown over time and existed for 2000 years now, but we still see that future restoration of Israel as future to us today so the next fate well even though the kingdom and its king were taken into exile in 586 bc and there's not been a king over israel since then the line of that kingdom was preserved based on which covenant davidic covenant david would never lack a man to sit upon the throne and that line continued all the way down to christ himself John the Baptist is the one that came and what was his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you see the connection on this slide to the kingdom he's talking about. It's the earlier historical kingdom of the Old Testament but with a perfect king that will actually lead the people in a way that all the other kings had failed. And he's also announcing that kingdom that was prophesied by the latter prophets. And that message was also taken up by Christ himself and by his apostles. But what was the reaction to that announcement in Jesus' own day? Rejection, particularly by the nation's leaders. And that introduced a new phase of the kingdom that wasn't foreseen in the Old Testament. Now, certainly, when you read Isaiah 53, you can see the rejection of Messiah. But this idea that there was going to be an intermittent era intermittent time or kingdom between two separate comings of Christ it's not clear at all from the Old Testament it becomes clear as you read the Gospels and certainly as you get into the Epistles within that period of time that is remember what what was the starting point it was actually the climax of rejection but what was it that prompted this period this new phase of the kingdom exactly so, I mean, how, how can you get any further from the truth? This is the Son of God proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom, showing himself to be the king, and their response is, hey, he does, he does what he does by the power of Satan. So, that was the last straw, really, for that generation. Christ begins teaching in parables to avoid, um, well, to keep them from understanding all that he's doing at this point, really to harden their hearts against him. And... When does that period of the kingdom end? Exactly. Good. So, and what is this... The question was, when does this period of the kingdom end? And his answer was, when Christ returns. Now, what kind of teaching method did Christ use to describe this phase of the kingdom? Parables. He said the kingdom of heaven, which is just another way of expressing the kingdom of God, is like this. And he would give these parables. And granted, some of them are not easy to understand. Some of them he went ahead and explained to his disciples and to us as recorded in Scripture. But he's really describing in most of his parables well, the nature of the kingdom during this intervented age. Now, within that age, if, if you think of the the point there of the triangle right after John the Baptist and then the long side of the other end is the return the the beginning of Christ teaching in parables and then the his return at the end of the other side of the triangle within that is the church and the church began at Pentecost with the descent of the spirit when does the church end with the rapture when the fullness of the gentiles comes in that rapture is what initiates what we know from the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. So the seven there is the seven years of tribulation that are described in great detail in the latter prophets. They're also described by Christ in the Olivet Discourse, perhaps given the most detail and chronological sequence in the book of Revelation. So Christ comes back at the end of that seven-year period. That's what ends that other phase of the kingdom, that red triangle phase, and then we have the thousand-year reign of Christ. And again, you see that connection with the earlier kingdom in the Old Testament. It is a Davidic king. It is ruling over Israel and the nations. It is on the earth. It's God's finishing out His plan as He laid out in the covenants. And then that eventuates into a new heavens and new earth. Uh, where sin has been completely dealt with, the curse has been removed. There's no more death. So it might be helpful for you just to think about uh, the kingdom as revealed in Scripture. And I, when I say when I say the mediatorial kingdom, I'm distinguishing it from another kind of kingdom of God. Anybody have an idea what that is? We've got what we call the mediatorial kingdom, and then. Well, a theocracy would be kind of... So that was during the area, particularly of the judges, where they didn't have a king yet. They had priests, they had the law, and God was supposed to be their king. At least that's the way I would normally think about a theocracy. But there's also... No, I mean, that's part of the mediatorial kingdom as well. Well, the mediatorial kingdom always has a human ruler. It's always on the earth... But there's another kind of king, or there's another way in which God rules his king. What is it, Isaiah? No, so I'm not denying that, it, that there is a spiritual aspect to the kingdom. What I'm speaking of, and I'm not doing a very good job of asking the question, I don't think, is the sovereign rule of God over all things at all times, right? Uh, God is always king. He's He's over not just the earth, but the heavens and the earth. He holds all the planets in their orbits. The devil is God's devil. He uses him for his own purposes. So even though you know there's times where the mediatorial kingdom might look like it's in disrepair, and you even have psalms that address that, God is always in charge. His sovereignty is never interrupted. And I think it's important for us to, to keep that in mind. Okay, you guys are doing well. I'm, I'm encouraged. So I want us to look at the storyline of the Bible in another way. You've got in Genesis 1 and 2 just two chapters where it's absolute paradise, right? God creates the heavens and the earth in six days. Uh, it's just beautiful. He creates man and woman on the sixth day to rule over all the other things that he's made on the earth and there's this closeness and fellowship with God that's unbroken by sin. Now somewhere between two and three, Satan, who was originally created as a good angel of God, falls. He rebels against God. We're not told where, but he comes into the garden, he tempts Eve, and Eve and Adam both end up eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that they were prohibited from eating, and paradise is lost. The rest of the Bible, until you get to chapter 21, is of revelation. That is, is describing a uh, earth that's under the curse of God. Rightfully so, because of man's fall into sin. And you know the four major events of Genesis 1 to 11. It goes from creation to the fall of man to things getting so bad that God destroys the whole world except for. Noah and his family, and those that are aboard the ark. After Noah and his family come off the ark, and there's some repopulation that takes place, man is still in rebellion against God. He's still not scattering all over the earth like he's supposed to and subduing it. So God confuses the languages at the Tower of Babel. Those are the four key events, and those chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, take place, as Benware points out, over a period of about 2,000 years. The rest of the Old Testament takes place over a period of another 2,000 years. But you have, next, in Genesis 12, God initiating this plan of redemption. And He does that through the call of whom? Abraham. From Abraham, He establishes the nation of Israel, and they are the means by which He's gonna redeem the world. Not just human beings, but the whole earth. Now, Israel's history is not very pretty. It's one of uh, largely characterized by rebellion against God. But it is through Israel that we have the Old Testament Scriptures. It is through Israel that ultimately we have the Messiah. And Christ comes and dies for the sins of the world. He dies not only for the sins of Israel, who are the means by which his witness nation, by which all the other nations were to come to know, the living God, but he, he dies for the sins of the whole world. Now, what happens after the cross and after Christ's resurrection and back His ascension back to the Father is the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2. And the, the book of Acts is really tr- describing a transition period from God working through the nation of Israel to this new entity called the church. So Israel still very much exists But they begin to be hardened, Uh, and we see that clearly in the book of Acts. There's a lot of uh, Jewish people that are persecuting Paul and anybody else that embraces the message of the gospel, the message of Christ and His crucifixion and resurrection. So not only do we have that happening through the book of Acts, but we also have the church established at Pentecost, growing through the book of Acts, very distinct from Israel. Jew and Gentile in one body, under equal footing, not under the law, and becoming the primary means by which somebody becomes reconciled with God. The means, actually. So that happens back in the book of Acts, and it happens beginning at Pentecost, but it continues on today. We're still largely in this same situation today, right? If you're going to come to know the living God, you're going to do that through the gospel and being converted and entering into the universal church. Now, at the same time, Israel still has been preserved, right? They're still in a state of being hardened today. Now, they've had opportunity fairly recently in 1948 to come back into their land, but they're there in unbelief, unbelief in their own Messiah. They're still trying to keep the Old Testament scriptures as much as they can, but they are trying to establish their own righteousness rather than accept the righteousness that God has given in Jesus Christ. There'll be a certain point at which that situation ends, and that is when the church is raptured and the tribulation period begins, the day of the Lord, as the Old Testament describes it. And really, at that point, Israel again becomes the vehicle. Well, you've got the 144,000 that are from the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're proclaiming the gospel during that period of time. You've also got, after Israel is brought through this time of great tribulation and refined and purged. You've got them redeemed. Uh, Another outpouring of the Spirit, opening their eyes to see that Christ is the Messiah. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Revelation, the return of Christ in chapter 19, his millennial reign in chapter 20, and then a new heavens and new earth in 21 and 22, you've got redemption and restoration again not only of the human race, as important as that is, but of the whole of creation. You've got the removal of the curse that came about in Genesis 3, at man's fall. Now, one of the ways that I think it's really interesting to illustrate this is to look at the very first two chapters of the Bible, and then, well, the very first three chapters, and then the last three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, When we get to Revelation chapter 21, we see John proclaiming, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, he gathered the seas together, gathered the waters together and called them seas. In the new heavens and earth, there is no sea any longer. In the beginning, the darkness he called night. At the end, there shall be no night there. You can see there's a very intentional corresponding language and description of the way things are being changed. In the beginning, God made the two great lights, the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. The city, the New Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or the moon, why? That's right, the glory of God illumines the city. In the beginning, there was a prohibition by God to man in the not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, Adam didn't immediately perish. Adam and Eve didn't when they first ate. But they began to die physically, and they were immediately separated from God. Their sin caused that. But in the end, in the new earth, there shall no longer be any death. God told the woman as a result of the curse that he would greatly multiply her pain in childbirth. There should no longer be any mourning or crying or pain in the new creation. Another part of the curse in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. Remember, before the curse came, before man's fall, uh, man had to work. Work itself is not a curse. He had to tend the garden, but he was not frustrated by weeds or by having to work in such a way that it seemed futile. Uh, it was a very different kind of, and enjoyable kind of work. All that changed with the God's curse upon the earth. Cursed is the ground because of you. Man would now uh, eat bread by the sweat of his brow. And it just changed the way that labor was. But there should no longer be any curse. Revelation 22, 3. Satan appears as a deceiver of mankind in Genesis 3, 1. Satan goes into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verse 10. Man was driven away from the tree of life in Genesis 3. The tree of life reappears in Revelation 22. I want to read that verse, Revelation 22, verse 2. John writes, On either side of the river, and the river itself is another allusion back to Genesis 1 and 2. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So you had that tree of life in the Garden of Eden. We're not giving them much description about it there. This is a very different kind of tree than what we're used to, right? All of our fruit trees bear the same kind of fruit every time they bear. This one bears 12 different kinds of fruit uh, according to the month. Now, I think it's important to recognize that there is a connection between the new heavens and new earth and the earth that we live on now. Both are physical creations. John's even making some connections here as he writes Revelation. But there's also a lot of things that are different and especially no more pain, no more crying, no more death. But even the fact that there's no more sea, there's no more sun and moon. It's it's a material creation but it's it's very different from the one that we live in now. It's not just a renovation of the one that we live in now because John says that the present heavens and earth were no longer there. They had fled away. In the beginning, because of man's sin, man was driven from God's presence, and there was a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life, to keep man from eating it and being in that state permanently. But what happens at the end? All those that God has redeemed, they shall see his face, his name shall be on their foreheads, really, as a mark of ownership. And they shall reign with him forever and ever. Andre. Question. Prior to them eating the fruit, were they only good? There was, there was no sin in the world? So they only thought good things and they only did good things? Yes. They, they had no sin inside of them. They'd been made in the image of God. Now, somewhere in there, and, and Satan, as the... the exactly that's right yes that's right now there were righteous men that came to know God even after the fall and you know you'd have to make a distinction between them and those that were continually wicked but you're right and Genesis 6 says the man, thoughts of man's heart were over only evil continually but those righteous men they were filled with the spirit they would have been righteous on their own yeah that's a really good question that's a good point Yes, I would argue that depravity is the same all the way through and that it has to be a work of God in a man's heart for him to, to know God. I agree. I, I have to make that argument more theologically than exegetically because the Old Testament doesn't speak about that very often. It talks about the Spirit coming on men for different occasions, coming on the kings as they ruled, coming on the men who made the furnishings of the tabernacle and the tabernacle. It doesn't talk about it the same way as the New Testament does. But I think it's fair to say that there has to be a work of God in a man's heart. Otherwise, we're all born in... That's right. That's right. Right. And from Adam forward, all men are born into a state of rebellion against God because of sin. That's right. I think so. I, you know, I don't know how close she was to the tree... But when Satan comes, he says, "You know, has God told you that you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden?" And she says, "No, it's not. We can eat of any of them except this one, because, and I think she says, if we touch it even, we'll die." I do think she was by herself. Not everybody agrees with that, but I think. He deceived her while she was by herself, and I think she thought about it for a while. The the way the verse reads, you know, she saw that the tree was good for food, and it was beautiful, and it was desirable to make one wise. I think there was a period there when she thought about it, and then she decided, yeah, I'm gonna eat it, I'm gonna give it to Adam. And the reason I say it that way is because of a New Testament letter that says that Eve was deceived and Adam was not. Yes, after she was tempted. We don't know what she said to him. It just says that she took of the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So again, you can make an argument that they were both there initially, but it seems like the Eve is the one that's corresponding with Satan. And that one verse, it seems to me, is uh, explaining kind of a time period in which she was still thinking about it. That's right. When he responds to God, that's exactly what he says. Now, what does God, God holds Adam responsible um, because he was the one made in God's image and had the responsibility of leading his wife. But he, he in, se- in essence, he blames God. And that's uh, the beginning of what men have done throughout history, right? Exactly. she didn't I don't think she tempted him I think uh, well no I think they did it together they both ate it together but I think (laughs) Satan tempted her when she was by herself she thought it through decided she wanted to eat it I don't know what she told Adam but she that's right that's right yes let's just look at the account yes and and again this is not something that's so if no it's not it's i mean you can make a case for the for it happening a different way serpent so was more crafty this is genesis 3 beginning in verse 1 then any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, Indeed, as God says, you shall not eat from any of the tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. The God, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then verse six to me is the one that seems like that's right, and you know, she's looking at the tree, she's mulling it over. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now again, I'm basing that on the fact that Eve. uh, I think it's in Timothy. Where Paul talks about Eve being deceived, it could be that they were both there and Eve thought that what she was doing was not a problem, and Adam knew it was a problem. He wasn't deceived in that sense, but it, I'm just basing it on the, on the way that the text reads with all the interaction between Satan and Eve, nothing said about Adam at that point. She's the one that begins, decides to take the fruit, and at that point they both eat it together. And, Yes. They definitely took it at the same time. Under I don't think it would be years. Yes. That's right. That God could correspondent to him. Course, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> but I always thought that since Adam had waited for Eve for however long it was, that when she ate, if he, he said to himself, Well, if she's going to die, then I want to be with her. I'm going to die too. That he made a decision to say, hey, if she's not here, I don't want to be here yeah. either. Yeah. He, he decided. He, he, <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he picked her over God, what I'm thinking. Oh so my God, it got upset. He basically chose Eve over God, I think, is what made God angry. Yeah. I, it does say because you've listened to the voice of your wife and not kept the commandment. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think, they're obviously, they're both made on the sixth day because, uh, let's look here back in Genesis 1. It says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Um, all that st- talking about what happens on the sixth day of creation. And then chapter 2 goes into detail as to, you're right in that God makes man from the dust of the ground, he blows into him the spirit of life, he makes him in his own image in the sense of having a will and intellect, emotions, that kind of thing, uh, and the ability to, exactly, the ability to have that relationship, and that's what separates him from the animals. Adam does name all the animals all the animal species and well you know let's think about that because it's a good point obviously he's gonna have species to name he's without sin at this point and doesn't have any trouble I think he does it pretty fast and I think part of that exercise was to show him yeah you, you you can name these guys these animals and you exercise dominion over them in a sense by naming them But it also took him through all those animals, and he recognized that there wasn't one that corresponded to him. And God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. So I think a straightforward reading would say that they both created on the same day. That's right. I mean, we have all these animal species today and variation, but that's through a lot of breeding that's taken place. Like even a donkey, right? Is a horse and a mule? Is that right? Somebody knows more. It's other way. Mule is a. Okay. Yeah, and you got all these breeding of dogs species down through the ages. You don't have to have all that in the beginning. So it wouldn't be as many animals that he had to name. Still a lot to be sure. And you wouldn't have to have as many on the ark. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think dinosaurs are clearly part of the original creation, and I think Job is describing dinosaurs in his account. Yeah, exactly. Even though, <laughs> definitely animals, and they have. Yeah, we don't have a Bible book that talks about dinosaurs in the future, but I wouldn't rule it out. All right, let's talk about the shape of the canon. Uh, I want to read quite a bit of this account because I think it's a fascinating story. This is right after or shortly after Jesus' resurrection, before his ascension. This is in Luke chapter 24, and this gives us context for this verse. Behold, two of them, and he's talking about two disciples, and these are the disciples on the way to Emmaus, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And again, by this point, Jesus has already made some post-resurrection appearances. There's buzz also about the fact that he had just recently been crucified came about while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Again, that's the sovereignty of God at work. He said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? They stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? He said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. It's just a great summary of kind of the expectation of that day, what had happened recently, how it had crushed the people's hope. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. That's a pretty strong rebuke. It seems, by implication, that they should have known that this was what was going to happen. Just from the Old Testament prophets. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets... He explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures, so there we see one division of the Hebrew canon, Moses and the prophets. The prophets would be the former and latter prophets, and we'll talk about what those are. They approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. He went in to stay with them. came about when he had reclined at the table with them, He took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them, and their eyes were opened. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven minus Judas and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. To me, it's just fascinating. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they were seeing a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Why would he say that? Was he just hungry? Exactly. To demonstrate that he's not just a spirit, but he was really resurrected. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Remember now, he's talking not only to the two on the road to Emmaus, but to the eleven and the others that are gathered together. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So that's our verse. These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is a three-fold Threefold division of what again would have been their Bible, the Hebrew canon. Tanakh is the way that it's sometimes referred to. It's an acronym. The T and the N and the K stand for three different sections. Torah, it's also called the Law, it's the Pentateuch, it's the first five books of Moses. Nevuim are the prophets, that's the Hebrew word for prophets. And that includes the former prophets, which would be Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. You notice they don't subdivide Samuel and Kings the way we do into first and second. And then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12. You notice that Daniel's not in there. He wasn't really considered a prophet in the same way these other guys were, even though he did a lot of prophesying and was given a lot of revelation. And then Kethubim are the writings It's everything else. Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah is considered one book, and Chronicles considered one book, and ends the Hebrew canon. Now, notice that uh, Jesus didn't say writings. He said Psalms, but Psalms, because it stands at the head of the list, kind of represents the rest. Notice also that those are the very same books that we have in our Bibles. They're just divided up differently and um, in different order. So we're going to be looking at it according to the English canon. Um, Benware does something a little interesting in that he talks about foundational books and complementary books. I don't agree with some of his designation of what he calls complementary. So we're just going to go straight by the English canon in our study. might mean that you have to skip around in Benware a little bit to read the the books in preparation for a particular Sunday, but that's okay. Pentateuch again would be the first five books. Uh, It's the foundation for the rest of Scripture. We've already talked about how four of the covenants that God makes with Israel occur in the Pentateuch, and they relate to the formation of the nation of Israel. The historical books are Joshua through Esther. They continue the storyline of the Old Testament, uh, Israel's ascent, decline, and exile, and a partial restoration, but certainly not the one described by the latter prophets, not completely. The wisdom literature is Job through the Song of Solomon. And the, the prophets are divided up into, Matt's not here so he won't get too mad at me, Major and Minor Prophets, Minor has nothing to do with their message, it's only their length. Matt, and I think rightly so, prefers that we call them the Twelve, uh, and that's because they could all be written as the Twelve on one scroll. They were small enough to where one scroll would take all of them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is in the Major Prophets in our canon, and even though it's not in the Hebrew canon. And Daniel is also in our uh, prophet section because, you know, Daniel's described, some people describe it as he was a statesman and not a prophet, but he certainly spoke as a prophet. He got divine revelation as a prophet and he communicated that revelation to others. All right. I think this is the last slide. This is maybe going to uh, Kathleen's question earlier, kind of how the Old Testament books integrate with one another chronologically and Benware actually has a chart on this is maybe a little better than mine but the Torah is Genesis through Deuteronomy we're talking about at this point uh, after Genesis 11 at least the patriarchs and Moses and there's the four covenants that are made during that period Abrahamic, Mosaic, Priestly and what we call the Deuteronomic Covenant after that are the historical books Joshua through Esther, they move from a theocracy to a monarchy, ultimately to exile and partial restoration. The Davidic covenant takes place during that time period in David's reign. The major minor prophets are coincident or along the same time as the kings that are described in the historical books. Um, And you have the New Covenant that are described in the latter prophets in Jeremiah and Ezekiel but other places as well very much in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then the wisdom literature as we said really runs the length of the Old Testament at least by virtue of the fact that Job's setting would have been back during the time of the patriarchs you have psalms that are attributed to Moses um, all the way through Solomon's reign to the Song of Solomon okay so we won't have an Old Testament survey next week. Matt will take my place for a second hour. And then the following week, we'll do an overview of the Pentateuch. Um, I don't think Benware even has a separate section on the Pentateuch. But hold off on reading the book of Genesis uh, until we till the next week. And we'll just do another overview. Because, again... There's another storyline, right, that runs from Genesis to Deuteronomy that's continuous. It doesn't break between books. So I think it's important for us to see that. Don't read Genesis yet. I wouldn't. You can if you want to, but I'd reread it again after we cover the Pentateuch. If you want to go ahead and get started on reading the book of Genesis, that would be great. You know, I know all of us have different amounts of time during the week that you can devote to reading Scripture. It would be really helpful during the course of this course if you can try to read most of the Bible book that we're going to cover for the next Sunday. It's going to be tough with Genesis. It's 50 chapters. I understand that. But whatever, whenever you can do that, it's going to be even tougher with Psalms, right? 150 of those. Whenever you can do that, uh, it will help you in what we're going to cover for that week. All right. You guys did really well this morning. I'm thankful for that. Let's have a word of prayer. and We'll be dismissed. Father, we do love your word. We know that we we love it because of what you've done in our hearts to open our eyes to see you and to see Christ and the gospel and to be reconciled to you. Uh, We know that the natural man is not attracted to your word, but it is the means by which we know you and the means by which we're saved and uh, the knowledge of Christ, that is, and We just thank you for it. We thank you for the fact that we live in a day where we have in a a place where we have very ready access to the scriptures and access to all kinds of helps. I just pray that you would help us as we walk through this class together to know you better, to know your character better, to know the plan that you've laid out in scripture and just to draw closer to you as a result of that And to live more faithfully as your servants through that. Thank you for uh, Michael and Rachel and just for bringing them together in your sovereign power. And for all the preparations that they both put in and will continue to put in this week. We pray that you would give us a great time of celebration on Saturday. And just bless them richly in their new lives together. And as we all go to different places this week, Father, help us to love you with a whole heart, and to demonstrate that love through our obedience. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.